How are we doing this morning? Oh, gathering together with the church is such a beautiful thing, especially on this Resurrection Sunday. We are gathering together with millions, over a billion people across the globe celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And to start out, I have actually a very important question to ask you. Uh, how many of you guys, raise your hand, uh, how many of you guys watch golf on TV? That's probably about what, what, what I expected, about 1% of you. Okay, now, how many of you guys know who Tiger Woods is? Oh, yeah, that's right. Way more than watch golf. We know who Tiger Woods is. You know why? Um, because at one point, he was the greatest golfer to ever live. When he was 21 years old, Tiger won the Masters. He won by 12 strokes. He absolutely, from the time he started as a pro until about 2015, he absolutely dominated the sport of golf. 14 major victories, 79 tour wins. It was like Tiger and then everybody else. This was up until the point where his life began to unravel. Uh, personal scandal, four back surgeries, the loss of his father, loss of sponsors and fans, made him unable to play the game that defined his life. Everything he knew and loved suddenly evaporated. He had no skill, no health, no family. And then in May of 2017 was kind of the rock bottom moment for Tiger. And unfortunately for him, it was incredibly public. Uh, he was arrested uh, and charged with a DUI because as he was, um, shortly after one of his major surgeries, he was still on painkillers and he was driving under the influence and his mugshot went viral. And it became this picture of his career from, from the, the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And so sports commentators, they all started to agree, like Tiger's done. Like, like he's never going to win another major championship in it, any way, shape, or form ever again. Uh, Shane Ryan, he, he wrote a piece in Golf Digest. Uh, I want you to see how cutthroat and ruthless golf writers are, apparently. Tiger Woods is finished. There will never be another moment. From now until the sun burns up the earth, the Tiger Woods will be good. You, man, golfers are edgy, apparently. <laughs> That Tiger Woods will be good at a good golfer again. If there is a golfer in the future who wins 15 majors, he will beat Tiger Woods by exactly one major. Tiger Woods is done. He wrote that in 2015. And yet, I can still remember April of 2019 when I started to get alerts on my phone. I don't even have anything connected to golf. You know, like, like the robots in my phone don't know that I, I have any interest in golf, yet they're alerting me. Tiger is about to win the Masters. After all he'd been through, and, and he shows up, and in 2019, he wins the, the tournament of tournament. He wins the Masters again, and what many would call the greatest comeback in the history of sports. Uh, there's like videos starting to go viral of like grown men crying, watching Tiger, like, you know, they're on TV watching this putt, you know, and then, you know, people are posting videos of their dads, you know, crying, and their moms, the moms were crying, not after the putt, but then when Tiger embraces his son afterwards and then hugs his mom, they're like, that could be me, you know, right? That's what I want, you know, in these moments, and it just, it moves us. Why? Why do these things move us? 
Why is it that stories like this move us so deeply, even in sports? Why does Tiger winning the Masters after he was done move grown men to tears? Why, does, why are Michael Jordan's three championships after he lost his father and retired for two years so much more meaningful than his first three? Why does Harry Potter coming back from the dead to defeat, defeat Voldemort after his death move even our cold muggle hearts? Why, right? Why does Easter, the image of that empty grave, uh, the confession of those witnesses, the celebration of our resurrected king move us deeply in our souls year after year after year? You guys, it's because the resurrection, whether we know it or not, the resurrection is written on our hearts. It, it just is. It's in our DNA. In, in the 1970s and 80s, um, Disney was struggling to actually write stories and make movies that people wanted to watch. And so they rewrote the script and the formula for how they were going to write movies. You can look this up. They, they call it the hero narrative. And at some point, there's a point in the story they call the resurrection. They said every hero, in order to move people, we need a resurrection moment where they're down and out and done and they come back. It is written on our hearts. We are created to long for a day when all sad things will become untrue because we are created for a day when all our hopes will truly be realized and all our fears vanquished and the enemy of death will finally be defeated. This is why when you open the Bible, the authors of Scripture over and over keep coming back to the resurrection. They say, no, no, our faith is built on this moment. It's built on this event. And so I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me today. We're going to look at this letter that Paul is writing, and he's going to remind these people of the gospel and why resurrection is so meaningful and why we build our faith and our lives around it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Okay, I don't, I don't want to get off track here. I want, you, I want you to remember what you've built your life upon. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, a great crowd, most of whom are alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Now, jump down to verse 17, where he discusses the significance of resurrection. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of the great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new 
life. What, what Paul is telling us is that Christianity, it's built upon an event. And, and here's what I mean. This moment of resurrection, this event is so significant because it provides validity to all that is preached and taught through the rest of Scripture. If Jesus is still in a grave somewhere, there is no validity to his teachings. And so, yes, Christianity it's founded upon the faith that is written in God's word. This is how we actually know who God is and what he's like. This is how we know Jesus. But these scriptures, they point to a person. They point to Jesus. And these same scriptures tell us it's an event, a moment where Christianity is birthed. It's where Christianity is born. It was the moment that Jesus rose from the grave. Because it fulfilled all the prophecies. It proved his deity. It, he was conquering over death and he's ushering in his eternal reign as the resurrected king. This is what we build our lives upon. And if we're gonna build our lives upon an event, we should have some level of assurance that this actually happened. And so what I wanna do today is I just wanna look at four key evidences of the resurrection and the and the implications that that has on our lives, okay? So these are four truth categories that give us confidence in building our lives on this event, on this resurrection. First, the verifiable witnesses, okay? Paul just told us about all these people in Jerusalem that Jesus had appeared to. Many of them he named in the scriptures, over 500. And he, what does he say? He says, many of them are still alive today. What does that mean? He's saying, go ask them, right? Go talk to them. You know who they are. Go ask did they see him with their own eyes? This is the discussion he's having when he's writing this. Now, for us, we always want proof, right? Picks or it didn't happen. Don't tell me your story about how giant that fish was you caught. Like, I wanna see video or a picture or it didn't happen. Did they have an iPhone back then? No, Steve Jobs was lacking. He didn't build it yet, right? So how did they, how did they count these and document these areas? It was through word of mouth, credible witnesses. And the more the more witnesses, especially with names, the more credibility. And here's what I need you to understand. It's not just the Bible that documents this. There, there are all kinds of um, historical writings that document the evidence of this, that document that Jesus actually walked the earth, that document that he was crucified under Pilate, and that document there were hundreds of people that declared they saw him after he died. This is Josephus writing, a, a Jewish historian. He wrote this in 93 AD. He was not a believer, but he was an historian. He says, now, there was about that time Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. When Pilate had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. And the tribe of Christians are not extinct to this day. He's writing this in 93, and he's like, man, they're still around. Well, guess what, 2023, um, there's a few more of us, brother, okay? Still around to this day. But people will say, well, okay, all these people, they could just make up these claims. But this is why we need to look at the disciples' transformation and to see the disciples went from being delusioned and afraid after Jesus' death to being bold and enthusiastic proclaimers of his resurrection. Listen, if you have struggles believing in the resurrection, you're in good company. What I need you to know is those first disciples, um, they didn't believe it right away either, 
right? So there's this story, like Mary, she goes and sees the empty tomb, right? And it's not like she sees the empty tomb and she's like, he is risen. And the soldiers are like, he is risen indeed. And then a musical breaks out, you know? Like, that didn't happen. Mary shows up. She sees the empty tomb. And you know what she says? Show me where you took the body. Jesus told them he was coming back to life on the third day and they see an empty tomb and they see the clothes and, and they start to accuse and say, where'd you, where'd you put the body? There's Thomas, one of his disciples. Some of his famous words, one of the only things you'll ever know about Thomas was that he said, man, unless I see his hands and his piercings and his scar and see the wound in his side and I can stick my hand inside of it, I will never believe like, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? That's what he's known for. Some of you guys are going to get to heaven one day and, like, selfie. Or you're like, Doub Doubting Thomas. He's like, come on, seriously? That was 2,000 years ago. I hadn't seen him yet. I believe now. You're like, oh, DT, you, you crack me up, right? <laughs> no, these disciples, they didn't believe it either. They ran and they cowered in fear, but something changed. You know what changed? They saw him with their own eyes. This is why... Every single one of those disciples was willing to die a martyr's death. And these were not small, simple deaths. These were brutal deaths. James was thrown from the temple and then beaten to death in Jerusalem. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India. Mark was dragged to death by a horse in, in Egypt. Matthias was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem, Andrew and Philip were crucified, and Peter, they go to crucify him, and he's like, I'm not worthy of, being, of dying the way my Lord did. Will you crucify me upside down? How do they go from cowering in fear to saying death does not scare us? They saw a resurrected king, that's how. That is, that is this assurance and this evidence. But we build on that. We see this historical impact that is made, because overnight, I, this group of poor peasants starts to proclaim something completely against their own worldview, and it spreads like wildfire. Christianity grew from a group of 120 disciples right after Jesus ascended into heaven, and it grew to over 33 million people in just 350 years. A small group, and it just spreads. Why did it grow so fast? Because people experienced life change, and people actually saw Jesus. And what happens is they would martyr these Christians. Um, they would, uh, there's documents that at Roman parties, they hated Christians so much um, that they would, um, they would light them on fire and use them, as, uh, use them as light for their parties into the night. Christians were despised, but here's what's so incredible, is even though they were killed and they were martyred, um, and they never waved in their faith, and they never recanted. And it was this persecution that actually gave everybody else confidence. After they killed them, they're like, wow, they really did believe that. And it spread, and there was this rapid growth. This is why even non-Christian historians now will say things like, the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. I think about even like our dating system created in the 6th century. What is it? B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord, 
Okay? It's centered around Jesus. It hasn't been until you know, the 19th, mid-19th century that they're like, hey, we're going to change that because you know, not all of us believe that, right? And so you know, we're going to say it's um, you know, BCE, before Common Era and Common Era. But I'm sorry, I don't hear anybody walking around and be like, you know, in the year you know, 2020, Common Era, right? Like, no. Like, but I don't care if they change it. You know why? Because it still centers around what? The birth of Jesus. You guys, Jesus is the center of history. It all centers around, even you, you guys are like, you know, we're all, um, we're all trying to learn AI right now. Okay, we got our chat GPT. We're writing our term papers with chat GPT. Yes, you ask AI, our future overlords. Who was the center of human history? They even get it right. Some of you guys are like looking around like, I don't know what's happening right now. <laughs> soon you will, okay? So, soon you will. But we have these writings and these letters of historical characters that were unwittingly documenting the rise of Christianity. Roman governors who were writing letters to emperors saying, hey, there's this group of like religious rebels. And they're doing this interesting thing. They're gathering on Sunday because they say that's the resurrection day. And they're singing hymns to a man we know was crucified. And they're worshiping him as God. And it's spreading and it's growing. You guys, the historical impact. Jesus is the center of human history. And then maybe the most important symbol of all, you guys, is the empty tomb. Think about it for a second. You guys, Christianity is the only religion that's vulnerable. Here's what I mean. Every other religion is just built upon philosophical teachings of a human who died. Christianity says, no, we're, we're vulnerable because we're built upon an event that could be proven wrong. You know how you prove it wrong? You go show us the bones. You find us the place where Jesus is buried. You can go visit the gravesite of Abraham in Palestine and he's still there. You, thousands of people every year go to the tomb of Buddha in India and he is still there. The burial place of Muhammad is in Medina and people go visit and he is still there. But if you were to spend thousands of dollars and travel thousands of miles over dozens of hours and go to the proposed burial site of Jesus, you know what you'll find? You'll find an empty tomb. The center of human history and they can't even find his bones. You know why? Because his bones are not there because he is risen he is alive. And if it's true, it vindicates and validates everything he taught and said. This is why C.S. Lewis put it so brilliantly. Christianity, if false, it's of no importance. It has no significance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. It is the most important thing in human history. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so we look at these, these four marks that, that point us in this direction, and admittedly, like just one of them by itself doesn't necessarily prove anything, but built together you see sufficiency in what historians call a sufficient condition to where we look back and like, Jesus lived, Jesus died under Pontius Pilate, and Jesus rose again, appearing to over five Hundred people, And this is why the empty grave is the most significant, important symbol in human history. Because it changes the story of life after death, and it changes the story of life here and now. Here, here's what I mean. The resurrection rewrites eternity. It writes a new story for eternity. This is, again, what Paul says. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, we're all sons of Adam, we all die because of Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Here's what I need you to understand and see. You were not created for eternal death. You were not, you were not supposed to die. And, and I know that sounds challenging to say because we're like, no, everybody lives. But that's not how it was supposed to be. You are created an eternal being. This is why when you lose someone, a loved one, there's something in you that's like, it was not supposed to be this way. Which is crazy because human, humanity has a 100% rate of death. Every single human being who has ever walked the earth has died. And yet when we lose someone, we're like, there, there's something that just feels wrong about it. I will never forget that day five years ago when I got a text from my sister. And she just said, hey, mom's in the hospital. And I was like, why is she in the hospital? Like, I don't know, she's not feeling well. And it, was just, it kind of jarred us enough where I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go see her. I'm gonna fly down and I'm gonna go see her. And I land in the Bay Area and, I, and my phone starts ringing and it's my brother-in-law and he's weeping. He's like, man, I don't know how to tell you this. He's like, they say she's already brain dead. We've already lost her. And, and I literally, this was my response. I was like, okay, thanks for the call. I'll see you soon. And I hung up. And I couldn't comprehend. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, like my mom is healthy. She's in her 50s. She's coming up to see us. Like she, what do you, it just didn't even register. But I remember that moment when I saw her in the hospital. And I remember holding her hand, and I was like, she's gone. And it was just this brokenness. I, I just held onto her hand. And I just thought about, this is the hand that held me as a baby. This is the hand that bandaged my wounds when I was hurt. This is the hand that held onto my arm and walked me down the aisle the day of my wedding. This is the hand that held my children when they were first born. I didn't just feel pain in that moment. It didn't just feel painful, it felt wrong. You know what I'm, if you've lost someone, you know what I'm talking about. It's not just, I'm so sad, I'm so grievous. It's like, it wasn't supposed to be this way. And I remember my wife was back home. She was up here with our kids. And she had to sit down my four-year-old son, Dax, at the time and tell him that his Mima had died. And because I was down in the Bay Area, California, and she was up here, she actually put her phone in the corner of the room and hit record so I could just see this conversation. And there's two things I will never forget from that moment. Um, the first is the deep sadness and grief of a little four-year-old boy who just lost his grandma. I mean, hearing him cry in that way and weep, and that, it just broke my heart. I remember feeling so robbed, robbed of all the moments and memories that were to come just so robbed of all the grief that we were, no, like he's supposed to grow up with grandma there. But there's a second thing about that moment that I will never forget. And it's how my wife preached the gospel to his little heart. She just sat there and she said, Dax, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry, I'm sad. But you know what I know, Dax? Without a shadow of a doubt, I know that Mima is with Jesus right now. And because she's with Jesus, we will see her again one day. 
And because she's with Jesus, we can pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you say hi to me, Mom? That's the level of reality of resurrection. See, the resurrection, it rewrites eternity. This is why Paul says we build our lives upon the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus, because he says, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. This isn't some fairy tale we make up to make ourselves feel better in the face of grief. This is the ultimate reality. This is what we all are built for. Our lives today and what we build them on will echo in eternity. It matters more than anything. The resurrection is not something that just happened to Jesus. It is something that will be experienced by everyone who has ever lived and will be either resurrection unto life or resurrection unto judgment. See, if we reject that reality that Jesus rose from death and fail to embrace the promised hope that God offers, we remain on a trajectory set in motion by the first human sin, separation, eternal separation. But if we trust what Jesus has done and shape our whole life around it, you will live in a resurrected, glorified state for all of eternity. This is why you have to make a decision. This is why, listen to me, if you are here today and you doubt this, would you, would you explore the evidence of Jesus? Would you not just dismiss this as some religion or some you know, hoax that people, have? no, would you explore? It, it implores you that you would explore because this is what we base our eternity on. It is of the utmost importance, and this is why we have to make a decision. Believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again and surrender all of life to him. This is what the Bible calls placing our faith in him. It says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. This is our hope. And when we do this, what's incredible is not only is our eternity rewritten, but life now is completely transformed. We hear these things and we, man, what an incredible day 2,000 years ago. Or we look forward in the beautiful theology of resurrection and be like, man, I look forward to that day. But what I need you to understand is that here and now the resurrection brings purpose and life and power to life here and now. It, it is the hope for life. Look at this verse in Romans 8 with me, okay? And, and just soak this in. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Think about that. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Not will one day, not one day will the spirit live in you. It's present tense. It's saying the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. What that means is the Spirit's resurrection power is available to you here and now in this very moment if you allow him to work in and through you. This is why we have to be reminded of this over and over and over. This is why the empty tomb was such a significant symbol for the church for 2,000 years. You see, for those early Jesus followers... They thought they were done when Jesus was killed upon the cross. I mean, think about it. Like, they gave their whole lives. They, they walked away from everything to put their faith in Christ and follow him. They walked away from families. They walked away from careers. They walked away from money. They walked away from friendship to follow Jesus, and now he's dead. They watched him be killed. 
They saw where he was buried and they felt hopeless. And here's what I understand because, because I'm a human. That some of us in this room, we feel hopeless right now. What you expected out of life just isn't happening. You feel your marriage slipping through your fingertips. You feel, mar- you feel relationships falling apart. You feel guilt and shame and burden and anxiety and depression and fear and failure. And when all felt lost and hopeless for those first disciples because of the death of their Lord, you guys, you know what happened? They started to hear a rumor that the grave was empty. And they, they didn't believe it. They actually ran to the grave and saw it empty. And they, they began to build hope. News so good that they doubted and they found every excuse. But the hope began to build and their hearts began to dream. And then they saw him. And they touched his scars and they heard his voice. The king of the world, the savior of their hearts, the Christ, the Messiah. They saw the resurrected king and it changed everything. This is why the empty tomb became a symbol of hope over and over for these early Christians. Because the empty tomb... It was a symbol of possibility. It was a picture of eternity in their hearts. It became a hope on which they built their lives upon. It became a spiritual power in which they lived. Here's what I need you to understand and see. Whatever you are facing and battling right now, I need you to know the Spirit gives you purpose and power in it. It's not meaningless because it's for, it has purpose because it has eternal consequences. C.S. Lewis writes, there are no mere mortals Every single person we interact with on a daily basis, we're helping them in one, tr- one direction or another, eternal glory or eternal horrors. And we have to understand there is purpose and significance in our everyday interaction, and there's power. Does your marriage feel hopeless? Not with an empty tomb, you guys. Because the empty tomb declares nothing is dead if it can be surrendered to Christ for resurrection. So do not give hope in the things that you, you are facing. Does anxiety and fear control your life? Not with the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead living in you. Paul writes elsewhere, he says, for he did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. That's the Holy Spirit that lives in us, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. Does that addiction seem to have power over you? Not in the reality of the resurrection. Your old self can now be buried with Christ and the spirit can raise you to new life. But we have to surrender all that we are to God. It means giving your life to Christ. It means surrendering to him as king and allowing the power of the resurrection to start in your life now. You're surrendering to his lordship. Um, I, uh, I really like my father-in-law. Um, he's, he's just this really neat guy. Um, uh, my wife, Jessie's dad, and uh, he's always really kind to me, and, and he, he, he loves his grandkids when he sees them, and uh, he was a homicide detective for years, so he has, like, the best stories, right? <laughs> you know, you sit down with him, you're like, ah, oh, give me a story, right? Just make sure it's not too dark outside, because they're all true. Started with a bag of bones, and you're like, this really happened, right? Don't bury me, <laughs> you know? Um, but here's the thing. Uh, he has no faith in Jesus, and he lives like it. And our kids will ask us about him. They'll say, how come we hardly ever see Grandpa Ben? How come he doesn't come to church with us? 
oh, how come he's not married to Gigi anymore? And we always sit and we tell him the same thing. Like, look, we love, we love Grandpa Ben. But he lives a very different life than us. And a major reason for that is because he does not believe in Jesus. And our kids, especially when they're young, they would have the same reaction. They're like, well, then somebody needs to tell him. <laughs> they're like, let's FaceTime him right now. Let's tell him about Jesus. <laughs> Little evangelist. You see, when my wife Jessie was 15 years old, um, he left the family. And ever since that day, 21 years ago, uh, their relationship just has never been the same. Uh, Jesse has forgiven him. His grandkids love him, but we don't have the kind of relationship him, with him that we wish we did. And, and I, I feel like I got a new perspective on this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my wife and I, we got away for our anniversary. And uh, we were just talking about her upbringing and childhood. And she was telling me about her relationship with her dad when she was a little girl and a teenager. And I don't, even, I don't think I understood how close they were. I've, I've only experienced what we know now. And she's like, oh man, she said this phrase that just kind of rocked me. She said, I was his person and he was my person. And as a dad of a little girl, I'm like, man, it just broke my heart. Because I'm like, I want my daughter to say that one day. Like right now, she'd be like, mom's my person. But you know, one day, if I bribe her enough, you know what I'm saying? Like, And here's the thing, you guys. He carries so much guilt over that decision to walk away. He doesn't know how to interact with us. He doesn't know how to be a grandfather. He doesn't know how to let us in. And so there's this disconnection in our relationship. And there's dissatisfaction in him. And I want him to know Jesus so bad. He, he came and visited Rise one time in our early years, and I literally just changed my sermon. I'm like, you're just getting gospel, bro, every way that I can. <laughs> we got done, and he was like, it was a good talk. I'm like, I'm like, that's for you, you unrepentant sinner. <laughs> I want him to know Jesus because I want him to spend eternity with his grandkids. But there's another reason that I want him to know Jesus. You know Why? I want him to experience the power of resurrection in his life now. I, I want him to experience healing from the guilt and the shame that he carries with him. I want him to have the Holy Spirit inside of him to transform his life and bring about a renewal. I want him to have a different purpose when he plays with his grandkids or he calls his daughter or his son. I want him to experience resurrection power now. And this is what I want for you and I, that we would be a people that would experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, moving in our lives and bringing healing and restoration and hope to the things that we need. This is what it means to live in the power of the resurrection. It's not something that just happened, and it's not something that's just going to happen. It is what we build our lives upon here and now. And what I'm telling you today is the same thing that Paul told the church 2,000 years ago. Look at that empty tomb. When all feels hopeless, look at the empty tomb. When it feels like life is falling apart, look at the empty tomb. Because all the power 
of that tomb-emptying, grave-robbing spirit lives in you now, today, and he is our hope. He is our goodness. The spirit that empty tombed, he's the power to restore broken relationships. He is the hope in the face of anxiety and fears. He is the freedom in the face of addiction. He is purpose in our work and our raising of children. He is courage to live out our calling, but only if we would make the decision to surrender to the Spirit's work in our lives. See, here's the problem. So many of us, we're still living before the empty tomb. We're still living life before the resurrection. What do I mean by that? We're still living in the guilt and shame of our past. Some of us even know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and we still just focus on our sin and our brokenness, not in the freedom that we have been set free from not in the power that the resurrection brings to our lives. And what I'm saying here, now, today, be done with that old life. Let that life be buried in the grave. Your shame, your guilt, your addiction, your fear, your anxiety, and surrender to the new life of Jesus that Paul is writing about here. And he says, what's the evidence? He says, the tomb is empty. And if Jesus rose from the grave and you put your faith in him, then he will raise you again to new life, to be born again. And so here's what I want. I, I just wanna, I wanna make an invitation today. I wanna make an invitation to two groups of people. Here's the first group of people I wanna make an invitation to. Those who have never placed your faith, faith in Jesus. Would you do that today? It, it takes two things. It is a repentance of your old life. Say, no, I, I'm, I am turning away and I am placing my faith in Jesus. It's not about getting your life clean. It's not about being sinless. It's not about being perfect. No, you come to Jesus first and then he changes you. And so I want to invite you today to make that decision. It says if we confess with our mouth, it's a public declaration, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead we will be saved. And so in a minute here, I'm gonna have us all stand up and I'm gonna invite you to come forward as a public declaration of your faith in Jesus and to just worship him and just to sit at his feet. But I wanna to talk to a second group of people too. And that's those of you in this room who are desperate for the resurrection power. It's not that you don't have faith it's not that you don't believe or have never made that call to salvation. It's that life has burdened you. The heaviness of what's happening in your family, the brokenness that's happening in your life. And, and what you need is you need an act of surrender. We are so prideful, you guys. We, we rely on ourselves so much. And, and, and the call of the Christian faith, it's a call to surrender it to Jesus and say, I need that spirit moving in my life. I need that power in my life. I, I, last night, I'm standing here and I'm going over my sermon. And we talked about having this response time. 
And, and, and the front was filled with chairs. We're like, man, th- we know we're going to be full, right? Y'all showed up. And I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, hey, you need to clear more space in the front. And I argued. I was like, nah, like that's going to be awkward like if nobody comes forward. And he was like, oh, you're still operating in your own power. That's going to be a problem. And so for me, on a daily basis, I have to have these acts of surrender where I say, why am I operating in my own strength and operating in my own power? It's day after day, a surrendering to Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit's going to work on our lives. It's available to you. And so would you do me a favor? Would you guys, would you guys stand with me? And I'm going to start praying in a second here. And as I do, I just want to invite you. Just come forward. There is space up at the front. If you want to make a declaration of your faith in Jesus today, would you just come forward and we'd love to pray with you. If you are in a point today where you're ready to give up doing life on your own, trying to carry it for yourself, would you come forward as an act of obedience and surrender it to the Lord? Come forward as an act of surrender, declaring he is Lord of your life. And you need to experience the Spirit's power in your life in a new and fresh way. Would you guys just pray with me? Lord, we are here as your children. And let me just say this as I'm praying. Would you just start coming forward? Whatever your reason, don't worry about the people around you. Scoot past them. Focus on Jesus. Focus on that empty cross. Focus on that empty tomb. Focus on the Spirit's power. Would you come forward as an act of surrender and declaration of his movement in your life? And listen to me. If you're here today, I mean, you would never pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Would you just pray after me in your heart? Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. And I believe that you came to earth took on human flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross on my behalf, paying atonement for my sins. But Lord, I believe on that third day you rose again, that you conquered over sin and you conquered over death and you conquered over the grave. And Lord, I want you as Lord of my life. I surrender all that I am to you. I pray this in your name. Listen, and if you prayed that prayer today, the Lord hears you and he sees you. And for the rest of us, would we just pray? Would you just join me? Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. And again, we will make space. Come forward. During this first song, come forward. Kim's gonna come up in a minute and just pray over all of us. But would you just pray with me? Holy Spirit, We believe you are the same spirit that rose Christ from the grave. And we need your power. We need your healing. We need your grace and we need your redemption. We need your freedom. Lord, we are tired of carrying things on our own. We do not have the strength to carry things on our own. And so as an act of surrender, we bring them to you. Would this Resurrection Sunday not just be another day? Will this not just be another moment, another Sunday? 
would you change the trajectory of our lives? Because their lives surrendered and submitted to you. Lord, would you move in our hearts? Would you move in our church? And Lord, would you get all the glory in this moment as we lift you high?